Well, first of all, thank you to all of you. Thank you for being here today. I have to say, as I look out across this, uh, this audience, this congregation today, uh, it is truly an honor and a privilege to see each and every one of you. I would like to call out so many of you by name right now about how delighted I am to see you, but I think it would probably involve this entire group. And since we don't have time for that, I will just say this. Please give careful attention to the acknowledgments portion of your program. Uh, my wife and I wrote that portion of the program in prayer and with great sincerity because of our profound gratitude for all of you for making this event happen today, as well as for our dear friends, uh, our family, uh, and just, again, so many of you traveling to attend, to pray, to celebrate, and worship with us today. We thank you. Now, beyond all those uh, thanks in the written acknowledgments, I do want to specifically thank uh, the speakers today for their very gracious words. Uh, so many very, very gracious words. Uh, very kind indeed. And lest any of you think that those glowing commendations will go to my head, please let me reassure you that my family is doing all they can to keep me humble. Yeah, so I'll give you an example. You all, you know, probably received that inauguration invitation that has the big picture of me on it, as is the custom and my name. And so shortly after these go out, my sister, who's here today, uh, decided to uh, give me a call. And I thought, oh, well, I'm getting a phone call from my sister. She's going to call and wish her brother congratulations, and that will be sweet and nice. And I answer the phone and say, hello, Jenny. And she says, hey, got your uh, inauguration invitation. Saw your picture on it. I said, yeah. She said, you know, no one likes getting a bill in the mail. <laughs> And then there was that pastoral mentor who called to remind me that when he saw it, oh yes, I remembered you when I saw that. You were the student I had who had a great face for radio. <laughs> but you know, then of course my children, my dear sweet children, back in January when there was an official vote to select me as the next president of Southern Wesleyan University, there was this moving gathering that we had with my family and our trustees. I was named the president, welcomed, prayed for, and beautifully, one of our trustees broke into the doxology and we all joined in. It was a beautiful uh, time where you could sense the spirit of God. Well, later that day in the evening when my family returned to the hotel, my wife and I put our kids to bed as always. And when I came to my youngest son, Isaiah, he looked up at me with glowing, admiring eyes. And he said to me so sweetly, Daddy, I am so proud of you that you get to be the president. And my father's heart beamed and I said, thank you, Isaiah. But then my son proceeded to look at me with those same sparkling eyes, and he said in all sincerity, wow, so no more Joe Biden, huh? <laughs> True story. <laughs> well, I explained to Isaiah, I was not in fact the president of the United States, at which point he demanded to know exactly which state was I president of. <laughs> After explaining that I was only just a lowly university president, Isaiah stared up at me, thought for a moment, and said, well, Dad, I'm still proud of you anyway. <laughs> I can tell you I am definitely proud of my wife, Sarah, uh, and my three children, Aiden, Catherine, and Isaiah, and I'm thrilled that they're uh, here today and, and just so proud of you all and tell you all uh, here publicly what I often tell you privately, which is uh, I love you and thank you. 
Well, speaking of pride, I do want to share it with you. Uh, I want to share with you from uh, the book of Isaiah uh, on this topic of boasting, the prophet Isaiah on the topic of boasting. Now, I am sharing from the prophet Jeremiah, but as the prophet Amos once wrote, I myself am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. And in fact, since coming to this university, I now work for a nonprofit organization. <laughs> Nevertheless, I do offer you this quote today from the prophet Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Today you have heard many kind words, but the real story of my life is this, that Jesus Christ plucked me as a smoldering branch from the fires of a broken home. He gave me life, hope, guidance, and all the blessings of a new Christian family. So if anyone has ever seen or heard anything good from me, it is only because of what Jesus has done. And I can say today, I am proud to know the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. And as I have known God over the years, I have become increasingly confident to understand when the Holy Spirit has laid something on my heart and embedded it into the fiber of my soul. And I'm convinced that God has laid a vision for Christian higher education on my heart and embedded it into my very soul. And I would like to share some key aspects of that vision with you all today. So let us begin by defining vision. Many people use the term, very few define it. I would suggest to you today that a vision is a description of a changed present or a preferred future. And with that in mind, what is this vision for us here today and beyond at Southern Wesleyan University? I believe God has called us to be a holy university, serving as a stronghold and an oasis. For what reason? To form and mature students, both spiritually and intellectually, for the kingdom of God. You might say, okay, well, Bill, but what does that really mean? What's the end game and the result of such a vision? How does that all work out practically? Well, let me break apart each part of this division and discuss it a little bit with you. And let's begin by understanding what it means to be a holy university. In our world today, we tend to think of the word holy as being synonymous with righteousness. But that is not true. Throughout the Bible, the word holy in the Old Testament kadosh and the New Testament hagios always means to be set apart for a special purpose of worship. To be set apart for a special purpose of worship. For example, God commands that certain vessels used in the temple are made holy. In other words, God sets them apart to be used in particular rituals in the temple as an act of worship. They're set apart for something holy. But most importantly in the text, the Lord says that his followers, you and I, all of us who follow the Lord, it says that we as his followers are made holy. That we, his people, are set apart for the special purpose of worshiping him and causing others to know him. Is this not what the Lord means when he says that the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and also, secondly, to love others as ourselves? So in this context, I declare to you today that we are to be a holy university, a place specifically and specially set aside for the worshipful purposes of God. 
But again, what does that mean practically? Well, at a minimum, it should mean that our faith in Christ should guide us in determining three monumentally important aspects of who we are in our foundations, in our mission, and in our methodologies. Our foundations, our mission, and our methodologies. So before I, I go on to talk about a stronghold and a refuge, I want to share with you about those three elements of how our faith in Christ informs us as a holy university in our foundations, our mission, and our methodologies. So let us begin. We'll look first at examining our foundations. You heard a little bit about this earlier today from Dr. Elaine Phillips. I will share with you that the world's first universities in Basel, in Bologna, in Heidelberg, in Oxford, and in Cambridge were founded as places of Christian worship learning and hospitality in that order. In fact, all of the oldest universities in the world, as well as 106 of the first 108 universities in the United States, were decidedly, emphatically, thoughtfully, transformationally, and unapologetically Christian in nature. All of these institutions, all of them, were devoted to the Severan liberal arts, which you also heard a little bit earlier today. There was the trivium and the quadrivium. Trivium, from these, the, this, word, this, uh, this Latin root at the beginning, tri, for trivium, trivium, uh, and those subjects were grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And the quadrivium, you can guess then that the Latin root quad there, four, four subjects, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. But why was this their curriculum? Why did that matter? Because they believed that foundationally, Every person was at their most satisfied. The church was at its best, and society was at its most flourishing when people were committed to loving God with all of their minds, as well as all of their hearts, souls, and strengths. In other words, they understood that study is worship, and that, in fact, Jesus himself commanded us, not suggested, he commanded us to love God with all of our minds. Fast forward from these medieval origins in Europe over 850 years ago, and we now find ourselves deeply within the information age. In fact, there are debates about what stage of the information age in which we reside. But whatever the stage in this age, our society is distressingly more concerned about what is subjectively entertaining, offensive, or new in our world, rather than what is objectively moral and true. It is as if the deluge of information readily available through our devices has stymied our ability and our desire to think deeply or sometimes to think at all. After all, why study? Why learn when you can Google it? Somehow it has not occurred to the general public that such an approach reduces the human capacity for rational thought. And that is not opinion. That is borne out by scientific research and multiple lanes of scientific research time and time again. Our electronic devices actually reshape our brain and its neural pathways. This societal reduction in logical reasoning is further complicated by the gravity of moral, ethical, social, and political challenges we face. A pandemic, a range of critical theories of law in society are but a few examples of the most salient issues of our day. In such a context, our world has a profound need for truth, wisdom, and discernment. And I would further suggest to you that in such a context, the world needs a thinking church, which is able to effectively engage society's complex questions. We can introduce the world around us to the one that the Romans came to know, not only as the power of God, but as the wisdom 
of God. And the holy university then can be a bastion of Christian thought and a producer of Christian thinkers able to leave these environs to impact the world with the love and the truth of God. As the eminent Notre Dame professor Mark Knoll outlined in his 2011 landmark book, Jesus Christ and the Life of the Mind, Orthodox Christology, as confessed in the ancient creeds of Christendom, can supply the motives, the guidance, and the framework for serious scholarship. In turn, such learning can create oases of not only relevant intellectual excellence, but also spiritual vibrancy and moral grandeur that can beautifully reshape the world around us. In fact, did you know that the very word university is often said to mean the whole, indicating, indicating the place where the whole or everything is studied, but that is a modern day myth, that is not true. The Latin universus comes from two root words, which means one turning, or in other words, one transformation. This means that universities, as they were originally designed, are inherently a place of change and transformation through study and worship. As the founders of all these ancient institutions confirm in their writings, this also means the original goal of a university was to see the world entirely transformed by God through God's transformation of the university student. Now, whereas the secular university seeks change for a humanistic, or in today's world, sometimes more often a transhumanistic philosophic end, the original Christian university had a more theological and a more holistic end in mind. In short, the secular university teaches knowledge and innovation. But because of its foundations, the holy university adds to these the pursuit of ultimate truth, wisdom, and virtue. We know that study can and should be a form of worship. As a result, a holy university can confidently stand, confidently stand on its foundations as its grand predecessors once stood, as decidedly, emphatically, thoughtfully, transformationally, and unapologetically Christian. So that's the foundation. But beyond this foundation, our Christian faith should guide us in our mission. As we have just outlined in part, our secular counterparts often offer a pale imitation of higher education because by eliminating the Christian faith, they have thereby eliminated the God of wisdom from the university. Yet sadly, so many of our fellow Christian colleges and universities, none of the ones represented here today, now seek to imitate secular mission statements and mission objectives. But I think we all know that there are those out there. Publicly proclaiming their status as Christian institutions, privately their identity is confused at best and moving rapidly toward heresy at worst. This results in syncretism with or surrender to secular philosophies in the classroom, undermining strategies in the boardroom, and the erosion of Christian values in the manner in which business is conducted. May God forbid it is ever so here. But why do these things happen at these other institutions? Well, I would submit to you in my experience around the nation with Christian colleges and universities that it is for several reasons, but I'll just give you a couple here this morning. On the faculty side, the Christian community has sadly pined for the societal esteem and prestige of the secular academy. Thus, it has imitated their philosophies and joined their never-ending quest for self-affirmation rather than seeing a clear and holy way forward with allegiance to the Trinity, submission to the scriptures, and a confident sense of identity and success before an audience of one. 
Meanwhile, on the administration side, certainly no less guilty by any stretch of the imagination. The Christian community has sadly become so anxiety-stricken over the pressure to admit students that it has forsaken both institutional mission and a Christian educational philosophy in the name of survival. I have already seen the sickening emails between senior administrations and other institutions encouraging one another not to take a stand on any controversial issue for fear of alienating any constituencies and thereby, in their minds, jeopardizing the college's future. Perhaps the administrators of such institutions should pause to ask if God wants such lukewarm and cowardly universities to survive. Meanwhile, this in turn creates new mission statements and vision plans that proclaim, we will be the college of choice for this or that demographics, higher education needs, we will be the college of choice. Thus, the college loses its identity in exchange for a popularity contest, rather than leaning into its Christian identity as its best means for survival and flourishing. The net result is a capitulation to the prevailing American view that college is nothing more than a barrier to be crossed before the real living and working of life gets underway, and so any cheap and quick path will suffice. We need to redeem that. This also results in a setup for aimless and frenetic activity on campus. You see, as the churning defines the daily schedule, a real but often unspoken battle ensues as a sense of no identity or competing identities struggles to redefine historically in Christian institutions as Christian in name and marketing scheme only. Then we wonder why enrollment at our institutions suffer and why in spite of our less holistically formed graduates we are now passing through a system, we wonder why then the American church has become so spiritually anemic and intellectually barren. Could it be that such endeavors deserve to die? As C.S. Lewis wrote in The Abolition of Man, in a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and we demand the function. We make men without chest and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and then we are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and then build the geldings be fruitful. My friends and colleagues, let such foolishness never be a part of who we are at this holy university. To the contrary, let us recommit ourselves. I ask you today, let us recommit ourselves here and now to a holy and a holy Christian identity. Let us recommit ourselves here and now to an unqualified submission to the authority of scripture and a zealous pursuit of biblical orthodoxy. Whatever the question our God asks, let our response to him always be, yes, Lord, as you say, we will do. Like Mordecai and the three Hebrew children of old, let us refuse to bow to the secular age, its vanity and its philosophies arrayed against Torah, God's people, and the flourishing that comes from God's kingdom. Let our mantras always be allegiance to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit now and evermore alongside of submission to the word of God first, last, and always. Amen. And may these commitments always drive our mission. So if we're willing to make such commitments, then there's grand news. Grand news, wonderful news. The news is so grand because it means that our mission here is not mere institutional survival. Rather, our mission here 
is to educate in order to help individuals better worship God and love others as themselves. How beautiful, how exciting, and what a privilege. Thanks be to God. Amen. See, our mission here is to form and mature students who will go out into the world and minister to the needs of a lost and dying society in the name of Jesus Christ. So consequently, we must engage the minds and the hearts of students in the classrooms, on the fields of athletic competition, in the residence halls, in this very chapel hall, in the cafeteria as a place of hospitality and fellowship, and in every other facet of campus life. You see, it is because of this mission, that is why here at Southern Wesleyan University, we have Christian faculty in our music department that help their churches and other churches in this region lead worship on Sunday mornings. And then Monday through Saturday, and no, that was not a mistake to not say Monday through Friday. Monday through Saturday, they are helping to teach our students instrumental and vocal teaching during the week. That's because of the mission. It is because of the Christian mission that our science, technology, and mathematics faculty here at SWU don't just conduct experiments in laboratories, although they do do that, but they also get involved in their students' lives you know what they do? They travel together on environmental science trips and biology trips all over the country and around the world, from beef cattle farms locally to the tropics of Costa Rica. It is because of our Christian mission. That is why our education faculty here embraces Jesus' call to love the little children and to let them come to him. They go out and our graduates fill the overwhelming majority of teaching positions, 85% of them here in Pickens County, and now we are moving in to Oconee County next door as well and beyond. Our graduates minister to students in K through 12 public schools, special needs programs, private schools, and charter schools around the country. Why? Because they believe in the mission. That is why our religion department does not just teach doctrine and preaching, although they do do those things, but they also teach pastoral ministry and leadership skills, how? by mentoring and apprenticing their students and knowing something about their lives beyond what grade they got on the last paper or exam. It is because of this mission that our coaches, thank God for you all, that our coaches know the athletic ability of every student athlete, yes, but they also know the health, the study habits, or the lack thereof, and the dating history of every athlete on every team. Our coaches lead students and their parents to know Jesus every semester. Thanks be to God. I could go on and on about our conference services, our career services, the Warrior Care Center that takes care of our military members and their children here and every other aspect of life at SWU. And these things must continue. Why? Because that is how students mature intellectually, relationally, and spiritually, and in turn, they end up affecting change in the world for the kingdom of God. By integrating faith, life, and learning, we train students to proclaim the gospel with academic excellence and spiritual vibrancy. You see, and this is key, study for the Christian is never about the mere acquisition of information. Rather, study for the Christian must always be about the worshipful acquisition of information for the sake of transformation, to be more like Jesus. Amen. We cannot forsake this mission in the name of the speed and the cost of training. An education that cares about forming a person's faith and virtue can never be replaced by the swiftest form of training which is empty of incarnational mentoring. As C.S. Lewis wrote, our ideal must be to find time for both education and training. But a quick virtuous training for all and a formative education for none is the danger that all schoolmasters have to fight. 
For if education is beaten by training, then civilization dies. So regardless of the methods or the technologies, hear me, it does not matter what technology we use or do not use. There are ways to do this online, and fortunately we have trustees that understand how to do incarnational um, mentoring and work with students, even via technological elements and, and online training. So this is not a screed against that form of training. It is, however, saying we must be sure and certain to use mentoring and incarnational approach for the transformation of our students and allow that to be at the core of our mission. So I've covered for you this morning so far the foundation and the mission of a holy university. Let us now consider how our Christian faith should guide us in our methodologies. And here I have two points to offer, one on presuppositions and the other more on that incarnational task. So first of all, certainly our faith in Christ should guide us as we evaluate current trends, old theories, and new ideas within any given discipline. Of at least equal importance, however, is that our faith in Christ assists us in determining our presuppositions, our principles, and our postures for study. Now, some suggest that minor departures in historic orthodoxy are of no great significance. I mean, after all, what does it matter if we alter our approach just slightly to accommodate the present culture? Wouldn't that seem more kind or nice or inclusive? However, one of the great lessons of navigation is this. A mere change of one or two degrees at the point of origin leads to untold hundreds and thousands of miles of separation the further you travel. In other words, if obedience to the scriptures and allegiance to the Godhead are not our true north in our presuppositions, then we should not be surprised when we arrive at a place that seeks to overturn the historic teachings of the faith on the most pressing matters of the day, including those on race, human sexuality, and gender. Indeed, our starting points do matter. So then our presuppositions begin with an allegiance to the truth, our positions are our doctrine, and our postures are the attitudes and manners in which we communicate those positions. As Dr. Tim Tennant, the president of Asbury Seminary has said, positions on God's final judgment, the emphasis on the blood of Jesus, or the teaching of scripture that marriage is a lifetime covenant between one man and one woman, all fall in the category of difficult positions in today's cultural climate. However, it is a categorical error to identify these positions as inherently non-loving. They are positions, not postures. Any biblical truth, you see, can be expressed in ways which are compelling and beautifully integrated into the beautiful tapestry of the, of the biblical vision. However, we must boldly reject the notion that we are not being loving simply because we hold scriptural positions which are at odds with the culture around us. The Jewish notion of chesed, it's a good word, you should try it, chesed. The Jewish notion of chesed, God's covenant love, was not any kind of modern sentimentality or fear of what others might think. Rather, God's chesed, his covenant love, is a kind of love which ultimately repairs the world and actually sets things right. So then if our presuppositions and our positions are orthodox, then our postures are free to be full of kindness, support, and patient teaching. But we cannot sacrifice or exchange our presuppositions or our positions for a posture. At the same time, we cannot forsake the humility and love of a posture while advocating a doctrinal position. Amazing how truth and love go together, just as we see embodied in that of our Lord Jesus. I've given you an example primarily from the theological realm with 
implications for our culture. However, all of this comes back to our acknowledgement that in any field of study faculty, from human biology to psychology to sociology to theology to philosophy, or to any sector of university study, we must hold biblically faithful presuppositions and starting points in our methodology, even as we maintain godly postures in our communication and kindness. Secondly, I would suggest to you that all of our methodologies for teaching are more effective when combined with an incarnational philosophy of education. The great Orthodox rabbi of the 20th century, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, once stated that what we need more than anything else is not textbooks, but text people. It is the personality of the teacher, which is the text that the pupils read, the text they will never forget. In this room, I can tell you that I have mentors, people who embodied the incarnational educational philosophy, and that is the only reason why I am here today. I see before me uh, my mentor, a man who was my father figure, uh, and my youth pastor, Quint Pitts, who dared to believe that he could actually teach middle schoolers systematic theology. And he got involved in our lives, and we loved him for it, and that theology has stuck with me and many of us to this very day because he was not afraid to educate alongside of an incarnational approach to ministry, and I thank you for that, Quint. I will tell you that the first time I really felt as though I was given permission and freedom to love God with all my mind was when I stepped into my student advisor's office as a freshman at Gordon College and found Dr. Elaine Phillips. And Dr. Elaine Phillips, perhaps more than anyone else here today, has shared with me this journey from serving as my advisor and my professor to tolerating the crazy book ideas I had when I thought I could solve everything as a junior in college. <laughs> True story. <laughs> to encouraging me to travel and live in Israel, to allowing me to return during my seminary days and serve as a graduate student uh, apprentice, to asking me when she was on sabbatical to serve as her adjunct professor, recommending me for the most significant jobs in the academic arena uh, in which I have ever served, including this one and being there when I graduated uh, at Cambridge University with my PhD um, and being here today. So Elaine Phillips, uh, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. But I also want all of you faculty to know, if you wanna know why I am trying to communicate authentically and genuinely that I am for you and that I believe I am here because I know I don't do as good of a job in the classroom as you do, but I want our students to have access to you it's because of Elaine Phillips, and the love that I have for her transfers to you. Incarnational education. You see, as professors, our work is not solely about the transference of knowledge. It is about mentoring, apprenticing, and incarnationally being vested in the lives of our students. Two weeks ago, 18 of our finest graduates returned to campus here at SWU. All 18 of them have gone on since graduation to serve in some capacity as police, detectives, county sheriffs, canine unit leaders, drug task force undercover agents, or other uniform security positions. Successful as they are, they did not come back to campus to thank us for their textbooks, strangely enough. <laughs> Oddly enough, they did not return to celebrate their final papers, their final exams, or their field projects. On the other hand, they did come back to thank us for their professors, a lot of their professors. And they talked about the role in which they played in their lives as students. 
They were ecstatic to share the ways in which they were mentored in their field of study as well as in how to do life. And they also shared that after moments of tragedy on the job or in seasons of great hardship personally, it was their SWU professors, staff mentors, and coaches who stood alongside of them, prayed for them, wept with them, and pointed, pointed them always to the God who never leaves them nor forsakes them. And this is just one of the many portraits of an incarnational approach to education taking place here at this holy university, and it must continue as a vital part of our identity. Our mission and our methodologies must also be something we fight for and do the hard work of advancing. And be under no illusions, there is hard work to be done. Nothing worth fighting for ever just falls in your lap. You have to fight for that which is valuable. It is said that when Dr. Benjamin Franklin left one of the Continental Congress sessions, a man on the streets of Philadelphia cried out to him, Dr. Franklin, what kind of a government have you given us? The good doctor replied, a republic if you can keep it. You see, good things are worth fighting for. We have many grand people and programs here, but there is hard work to do to maintain spiritual faithfulness, functional vitality, and dare I say, financial vibrancy in the future. So you see, for faculty and staff and for all of us in the administration, if you wanna know why we're here, and if you ever wonder, why am I here? The answer needs to be calling because of our calling. Well, I've shared that we are to be a holy university with you all, standing on our foundations while forming our mission and our methodologies. But I have also said today that we are called to serve as both a stronghold and an oasis. Why are those images so important for our vision? In fact, some people might say, why did you mention stronghold at all? Well, a dear friend of mine, one of my closest friends, in fact, in the Marine Corps, shared with me recently that he defines the idea of a stronghold by Paris Island. He went on to say that Paris Island, right here in South Carolina, is an American refuge and a stronghold from adversaries such as the Taliban. He said that when a Marine uses these terms, it means that Paris Island is a safe, stable place where the traditions are strong and you have the resources necessary to train for the coming battles. Now, anyone who has been an adult in this room for more than 30 seconds can tell you that inevitably you will face battles in your life. Hardships, trials, and tragedies are a sad commonality this side of eternity. Yet I wonder if the next generation of Christian University graduates is prepared for the future. Have you wondered that? Are they prepared for what the world holds for them? We live in a generation which proclaims often violently that it is in favor of social justice while it completely ignores the vital prerequisite of personal righteousness. For how can a society ever be truly just when its members live in and promote moral anarchy? I would also submit to you that if our society remains on its present course, then before the next half century is ended, Christian organizations that hold to biblical views on a lose their tax-exempt status at a minimum. We must prepare for that. This may even be a profound understatement of the time frame and the ramifications we will face being historically orthodox. And for any who believe I speak from paranoia, political polarization, or hyperbole, I remind you that Christians around the country right now, they are currently facing violence and the destruction of property without legal recourse for their pro-life views. Others at institutions where I have served have been extremely marginalized and encouraged to leave the institution 
because they upheld the radical racial equality that Jesus Christ offers us and says we do not need critical theories when Jesus has given us his message in Ephesians 2 that through him the dividing wall of hostility is brought down and we all can be one. But they have been shoved out of those institutions. Even members of our own SWU family who work here now in previous times have lost their jobs at other institutions and had their names slandered in the past for standing up for biblical views of human sexuality and gender. Are the university students of today, are we prepared to consistently bear the shame of the cross in society when Christ bids us do so? Are our students intellectually prepared? Are we to face ostracization for doing so in a biblically faithful way when we are called upon to intellectually engage the complex societal issues of the day? You see, we have a unique, unparalleled, and sacred opportunity as a holy university to provide our students with a stronghold and a refuge, a place where the traditions are strong and the resources are present to train them, not only for their careers, but for the life ahead. For those of you who are familiar with the Lord of the Rings, we have the capacity here at SWU to build a Helm's Deep, a refuge, a stronghold. And continuing the metaphor, the bonfires on the mountaintops of the north have been lit. We in the south ignore their warning at our peril. So as we wait upon our own faithful and true writer to appear at dawn from the east, we're talking about Jesus in Revelation 19, not Gandalf. Okay. As we wait for him, we must diligently guard the faith that has been entrusted to our care. At a holy university, we do so in part by faithfully training the next generation. This stronghold, though, is not a hiding place. This is not a call to retreat from the world. Rather, let our stronghold be a place where people take shelter from the storm long enough to strategize anew, to train, and then go forth to re-engage with greater strength and purpose in the long conflict with evil in whatever its new forms may be. We can offer our students and their communities of faith a refuge, a training ground, a solace, and an enduring encouragement here. And that is why we must be a training ground within a stronghold. So then I come today to declare to you that our holy university can and should be, in addition to all these things, a holy university, a stronghold, also an oasis. An oasis by definition is this, a small green fertile area with a spring or a well, usually in a desert region and serving as refuge, relief, or pleasant change from what is difficult. You see, a garden with a spring or a well inside of it uh, is what we're thinking of. A garden with a spring or a well inside of a refuge, inside of a stronghold. That's the oasis we speak of. And that image could not be more relevant to the kingdom of God on earth. You see, throughout the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, we see God's presence symbolized with water. And we see humans flourish when they follow God's Torah. Of course, Torah is this Hebrew word we usually translate as law or teaching. Yet much lesser known is that Torah is a term related to agriculture. Its word implies, its root word implies the growing and the guiding of a tender shoot. In fact, there is a strong rabbinic tradition that Torah represents the guidelines by which God causes people and societies to flourish. God's Torah are the garden stakes for our lives. In other words, God's laws and his teachings guide us, they lead us. God's presence gives us the water of life and his Torah grows us, protects us and teaches us all how to be at our best. 
aren't all of the kind acts of service that I've mentioned by our faculty and our staff and our coaches here an oasis from the world? Where else will you find people that do those things? Not in many places. But I tell you this, we personally and as an institution, we have a choice in the matter. And so I return now to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah once warned that the kingdom of Judah should not forsake God because God alone was their fountain of living waters. Jeremiah said the only alternative was self-created cisterns, which were broken and which could hold no water. The imagery is a choice between a life-giving pursuit of God or a deadly pursuit of fulfillment in the deserts of self-actualization, which is what our society would urge you on into. But deserts are dangerous places, and people would do well to consider the implications of their choices. In 1998, I was living in Israel when I befriended a Bedouin family. After traveling, them, uh, traveling with them in the desert and arranging a business deal that went through with them successfully, I was formally made a member of their new family. The ritual involved new clothing, a new name, and meeting with a council of their elders. The meeting also involved uh, food, an introduction to their coded forms of communication, and a teaching about their international trade paths. These paths often went through the desert. They were dry, hot, and filled with rocks and the bones of animals which had died from thirst. For those who have not sojourned there for an extended period of time, it is nearly impossible to describe how your mind slowly loses its clarity and ability to reason in this extreme dryness and heat. So after many long hours in this context, I cannot describe the relief and the happiness of reaching an oasis. You see, an oasis has all that is vital, water, shade, food, and a secure place of rest, and the ability to think clearly once again. Regardless of who you are, you will inevitably face deserts in your life. In other words, you will face trying times that will test you spiritually, intellectually, relationally, and emotionally, and sometimes even existentially. These trials may be personal, they may be professional. They may originate from societal pressures, or they may be the result of your own choices. Whatever the cause, the duration, the extent, or the severity of our trials, they do arrive in our lives, and they can seem like a dry and a scorching desert. However, the true oases of life are always with the presence of God and the community of his people. Not only can Christ bring life, healing, and strength to you, his people can provide solace, encouragement, protection, shelter for rest, and not insignificantly for a holy university, shelter that restores clarity of thought. Such a community oasis is like a fountain of water with a flourishing garden located within a stronghold. In fact, that combination in the Bible always describes Eden as well as the New Jerusalem. Many of you will know, or many of you saw today, there is a water fountain at the center of our campus. If you haven't seen it yet in person, there's actually a picture of it in the final page of the program you hold in your hand for today's ceremony. I give you uh, freedom to go ahead and look at that if you will. If nothing else, if I haven't already cured your insomnia, it will offer you a pleasant distraction. But I tell you that if you look at that picture, you will notice a sculpture above it with an eagle representing the word of God going forth over the world. The inscription below it is about the spirit of the warrior. So think about that, a place at the center flowing with water. The word of God is there, and apparently the spirit of the warrior is there. That sounds like an oasis within a stronghold to me. It also sounds like that New Jerusalem in Revelation 19 to 22. I offer you a brief snippet of chapter 22. 
Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Well, we have not arrived there yet, but we do believe in an inaugurated eschatology. In other words, we believe that we live in the time between Christ's death and resurrection and his return. God's kingdom has come in the person and work of Jesus, but it is not yet fully realized. I'll offer you an analogy from the military world. We'll go back to World War II. You see, World War II's decisive victory began on June 6, 1944, which we all know as D-Day. From the moment the Normandy landing was proved successful, the Axis powers were doomed. However, there were still many battles fought along the way. The boys of Bastogne were trapped until Patton's arrival. The Battle of the Bulge threatened to overturn the entire enterprise, and the Battle of Berlin was hard fought in spite of its outcome being certain. It's the same way for us. In the same way, we live in an, in an, in an embattled world. Evil was decisively overthrown at the moment Christ was crucified and risen again, thanks be to God. Amen. Yet we endure many battles along the way until his return. In these battles, the church, God's people, need a safe training ground in which the flourishing of God's kingdom is already beginning to be seen, even if only just a portion of it. And there is no better fulfillment of that than the holy university, a place specially set aside by God as a stronghold and an oasis for the intellectual and the spiritual maturing of its students. So now, back to where we began. This is the vision, that we here are to be a holy university, specially set aside by God as a stronghold and an oasis for the intellectual and spiritual maturing of our students. In conclusion, I want to share with you all a dream. I have never before shared this publicly. In truth, I have only told my wife and three other friends this dream in the course of my life. Yet it is a recurring dream I've had since late high school. So in other words, this dream has been recurring in my life for at least the last past 30 years. And it is the vision of a city. The vision of this city in my dream is so powerful that when I'm in this city and in this land, I want to stay in that dream. And when I'm awake, I long for the time when I can return to it. I've been known to pray before I go to bed that the Lord would let me dream of this city again. In waking hours, I have considered this dream for many, many hours, usually accompanied by tears of joy and trembling. It brings me such joy and hope that when it has been many months or years since I've had the dream, uh, I long to see it again. I have often thought of this dream or described it to my wife as a dream where I travel to my city. <laughs> but I have come to realize over the years it's not a dream of my city at all. It's a dream of God's city. I usually can feel myself traveling there with great anticipation and perhaps at times even a little fear, although both of these immediately give way when I arrive to deep peace and excitement. I can tell you there is no evil there, nor is there a trace of sorrow on anyone's face, though there are many, many people there. The animals speak, and they play with the people. And to my daughter, Catherine, I wish to say that I can actually see sea lions and sea creatures having fun playing with the people along the seashore as they talk together. 
It is truly a place where the lion lays down with the lamb. Perhaps the greatest thing about the city, which is really an enormous land somehow, is that happiness abounds there. People are happy, and they're genuinely, deeply delighted. There are people there from every tribe, every race, and every language. And I have the feeling I know them all somehow, even though I know I've never met them all. At the same time, I also know when I go to this place in my dream that my family is not yet with me, and I do want them to be there. But as I look around, the people are creating things, crafts, artwork, clothing, food, each according to their custom, and it is all beautiful. It is resplendent. And they share and they trade it all without argument or conflict. You can feel the peace and the harmony, but not because of the absence of conflict, although that's true, but it is more because there is a presence there. A guide speaks to me and answers my questions. I once asked him where the scriptures were, where were the Bibles in the city, and he said to me, can't you tell, can't you see? I've written it upon their hearts. And suddenly I somehow could see that that was in fact true. I could go on for hours and hours describing the details and the feelings evoked by this recurring dream of my cherished city. And I make no special claim this morning that this is a real vision of heaven and I'm not seeking to write a book or make a movie about it. <laughs> I have to tell you, it's too special to me for such commercialization. And I hope I have not degraded it by daring to speak of it publicly today. However, I do think God gives me this dream for a reason. I believe God is showing me a reason for the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. And I believe that God is also showing me this dream to give me a calling. I believe God is using the dream to call me to build a forward operating base for this city. I believe God is calling me to build that forward operating base for this city. And I believe he's calling me to build it on earth here and now. It is my prayer and it is the deepest longing of my heart that God will be pleased by what we offer him as we seek to build this holy university, this oasis within the stronghold, this forward operating base of God's city. And so I say to you all today, come and join me now. Join me in this vision. Send your sons and your daughters here. Stand with me in the hard work that must be done. Join me in this vision. The Lord God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, I believe is about to do something new here. Not of my doing, but of his doing. And one day we will stand back and join with the ancient song of Psalm 118 and say, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He will make a way in the wilderness and streams in the desert, but only if we follow him with all of our hearts, minds, souls, and strength, now and forevermore. Amen. To God be the glory.